0: The word Advent means an arrival or a coming, and it is the time when Christians have historically prepared for and celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ. Though we are not commanded in Scripture to recognize Advent or or even to celebrate Jesus' birth, we think that it's good and it's helpful to do so. After all, we celebrate uh, our births, we celebrate those who we love, and, and even people that have have left this world, who have made an impact in this world, we, we recognize their birth, their death, we, we remember them. And, and how can we not remember then our Savior's birth when he came into this world? And so we, we find it as a helpful practice as the Advent season provides us with a yearly opportunity to reflect on the importance of Christ's first coming to earth. As we wait for Christ's return, that is his second advent. This year in the four Sunday worship services leading up to Christmas, as well as our Christmas Eve service, we're we're going to be making our way through the prologue of John's gospel. That is verses 1 through 18. And the title of this Advent series comes from verse 14 in this passage. It is, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. That's what we want to do this Advent season together. We want to see God's glory. And now I invite you to turn to John 1.1. You can find this passage on page 886. And in the Pew Bible, that's the page you'll find it, 886. Uh, The Pew Bible is located below the seats in front of you. I do ask that you take out either that Bible or your Bible or your phone if you're using an app to to follow along. It won't be on the screen and, and we want the word of God to be in your hands. This morning, we're only going to make our way through the first five verses of this passage, but each Sunday when when we preach, I'll be preaching every other sermon. One of our missionaries, Mike Creech, will be preaching the other sermon. So I'm preaching this morning. Mike Creech, our missionary in Senegal with his family, he'll, he'll be preaching the next sermon and then uh, you get the picture. Uh, each sermon will, will begin by reading the entire passage. We, we want the whole passage to be in your mind as we make our way through a section. This will be helpful for context. I'll be drawing a lot from other verses in the entirety of the passage, and so I, I want this to be in your mind. I, I also, we're, we're not going to be doing an Advent reading. Uh, in previous years, we've used different devotionals, and we've encouraged you to use a devotional. Uh, hopefully, if, if you'd like to do that, you can do that on your own. Use one of those resources if you want one, I can get you one and, and, um, and, and make that available to you. But, but this year, instead, what I'd like to do is challenge you to memorize all of these verses, verses 1 through 18. Uh, consider it not just a challenge, but an opportunity for you to, to give yourself a present. As a Christian, if you're a Christian, you want God's Word deep in your mind so that you can easily access it, uh, not just in the Advent season, but all the time. And, and the, the truths that are contained in verses 1 through 18 are fundamental. They're glorious. They're big truths that are worth memorizing. Obviously, all of God's Word is, is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. It's God's Word. It's precious. Uh, but, but I think this gives us an opportunity to, to memorize Scripture together. And so you can break it up in the same chunks that we'll be working through that. This week, memorize verses 1 through 5, and then you can pick up from there as we make our way. I think it'd be wonderful—I'm not going to have us do this on Christmas Eve, but, but if many of us don't even need to open our Bibles— On Christmas Eve because we just have this text memorized by that time. So so consider it an Advent challenge, uh, a way to bless yourself with God's word, uh, to meditate and memorize the scripture. And now if you're able, please do stand for the reading of God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, he has made him known. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. And now let's pray. God, you are glorious. You are holy. Everything you do is right and just. Help us to remember that this morning as we gather in this church building in this sanctuary to worship you, the living God of the Bible who speaks through his word. Father, we can make ourselves so great and in our minds make you so small and yet your word corrects this type of thinking. This passage helps to correct this type of thinking. You are glorious. You are good. You are holy. Help us to see your glory this morning in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would wake up hearts, that you would change hearts, that you would give us an exciting and fresh understanding of your glory this morning as we make our way through this passage together and in the coming weeks. Father, you are gracious, you are kind, you are merciful towards sinners. You've revealed that to us in your Son. And this morning, we want to worship you in light of who you are and what you have done in Christ for sinners. Father, even even we who have been saved by your grace, who who have been declared righteous because of Christ's finished work, we continue to struggle with sin. We we, we know this reality. We're reminded of this with the catechism question that, that we read together this morning. Even after being regenerated, being born again, even after a miracle has taken place, you have given us new eyes to see Jesus, ears to hear your word and, and hearts to, to believe and, and to turn away from sin. We continue to struggle with sin and we hate it. I hate it. I hate that I continue to, to go away from you at times rather than closer to you. I hate the fact that, that I and we, your, your, your people, do not represent you the way that you've called us to represent you in this world. We continue to struggle with sin, and so we confess that this morning together. We have sinned in word, in thought, in deed. And at the same time, in light of what we have sung and what we have just read, we, we recognize that Jesus is our only hope and that because of what he has done, we are forgiven. And so we confess our sin and we confess Christ as our Savior and that our hope, our trust, our faith is in his finished work this morning. Help us to, to live in light of this tension. We are, we are still struggling with sin and yet our Savior Jesus Christ has paid for our sin, past, present, and future. May it fuel us to pay attention this morning. You are the God who has redeemed us, who has rescued us. You deserve our attention. You deserve deserve our focus. You deserve our worship this morning. Lord, we we lift up those among us who are struggling with health issues, who are continuing to, to face battles with cancer, with sickness, with illness, with disease. Lord, we pray, yes, we pray for healing. We pray that you would give wisdom to doctors so that these brothers and sisters would know how to how to care for their bodies and what would be best and what would not be best and and we pray for for these things we, we pray for them earnestly we we don't want our brothers and sisters to to go on suffering, and yet the reality is that that your word says we will suffer. our bodies will break down, we will experience hardships because of cancer. In a fallen world, this is the reality. Help us to have a big view, a, a biblical view of, of the place of suffering in our lives and in the lives of, of Christians. And, and so help us to not just pray away or to dismiss suffering, that you're using it to, to display the, the power of the gospel, to, to keep your people, and, and, and help us to see suffering as, as a means by which you might just be bringing some of our non-Christian family and friends into, into the reality that they are going to die and that they need a Savior most of all. They don't just need to be healed from cancer, from sickness, from disease. They don't just need suffering to go away. They need their greatest problem solved, and that is their problem with you, a holy and righteous God who they are not trusting in, who they have sinned against, who they need desperately to be saved from and to. And so, Father, help us to encourage the believer who is experiencing suffering, and to and to pray that you would use suffering in the lives of the non-believers who we love and care for to bring them to yourself, to bring them to Christ. And Father, we pray for those among us who who are celebrating, uh, hearing good good news about a a, a baby being born in, by a, by the by a couple that are members in this church. We, we celebrate this gift of life and we, we celebrate all the, the good things that you are doing and the blessings that, that you are giving to us as a church. We are so blessed. We recognize you as the giver of every good gift and and we pray for for, for those who are celebrating this morning a a good gift, an engagement announcement, this new life that that, uh, will be here on Sunday mornings and joining us and learning the gospel uh, by your grace from their parents and from this church. Uh, Lord, we, we also pray, Father, for the persecuted church. There, there are brothers and sisters scattered throughout this world that you have in places where they're, they're in jail, they're, they're beaten, they're, they're tormented simply because they're unashamed of the gospel. We pray for them that they would, they would continue to be unashamed of the gospel and you would use them to proclaim the good news of the gospel in places where, where it hurts, it costs to be a Christian. And Lord, now we pray that you would use this passage to to, to change us, to mold us, to, to give us eyes to see or to see more clearly the greatness and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, so that you would be glorified in our hearts. You would be worshiped and that we would have greater joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this time of year, many of us find ourselves asking certain questions. I find myself asking similar questions uh, over and over again every time that Advent comes around, every time we, the, the, the weather changes, every time it gets a little bit colder. Is it really worth all of the trouble to put up the Christmas lights and the decorations? I admit that, that I haven't done that yet. I haven't put up our, and, and, and we will, and, and, and I'm a little behind it, partly because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a real tree guy. And so we haven't gone to get the real tree and put it up. And I, I, I know someday we're going to make the transition to the to the fake tree, but I just can't get there yet. I like the smell. I, I, I like the, the tradition of, of the real tree and, and all the, the labor that goes into it. Uh, but is it worth it? All the trouble, you know, you, you don't need them. So maybe, maybe you're thinking about if you're like me and you haven't put them up yet to, to, to not put them up. Maybe you're asking yourself the question, do I really need to gather with all these relatives that I, that I barely ever talk to and, and only see once a year and when I'm there, they don't seem to really be interested in talking with me. So maybe you're one of those asking that question. Do I really need to go and spend a, a Saturday or a Friday night with these people that, 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 that I'm not really close with? Maybe you're asking, who, who, who should I give gifts to this year? Should it just be my family? What about friends, people in the church, neighbors? What about some of my coworkers? Should Should I be giving gifts to them? And do I have the money to to give them a gift? And, And if I do give them a gift, will they even care that I've given them a gift? Is it worth it? Or one of the more perplexing questions of all, at least in my mind, why do some people drink eggnog this time of year? Why would you do that? It's egg and it's nog, and neither sounds good when you don't cook the egg and you put it in nog and you mix it up. Why would people do such a thing? Now, whether or not you've asked yourself some of these questions or or other questions, the the most important question, I, I think, to ask yourself this time of year during Advent is, why do I celebrate Christmas? Now, for the non-Christian, the answer might be that, that, that you celebrate Christmas because it's your family tradition. This is, of course, how we begin before we're born again. It's just a tradition. We go through the motions. Maybe we go to, to church on, on Christmas Eve or, or the Sunday before, and, and we celebrate Christmas simply because that's what we were raised to do, to celebrate Christmas. Uh, maybe you celebrate Christmas because it's an excuse to, to gather with your family and friends, another reason to, to get with people that you love and care about. Or, or maybe you celebrate Christmas like so many children seem to celebrate Christmas and some adults because it's just an excuse to, to give and, and, most importantly, to receive gifts from people. But for the Christian that celebrates Christmas, the answer to the question, why do I celebrate Christmas, is found in the answer to another question, who is Jesus? Jesus. And in these first five verses of the Gospel of John, John tells us just who Jesus is. And before we look closer at who John says Jesus is, well, we, we should consider who John is because we'll be reading his Gospel together, at least the beginning of his Gospel together for the next four services after this one when we gather for, for worship. Well, John was an apostle. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's not John the Baptist who, who comes up in the, in the passage. He's, he's a different John. And Matthew 4, 21, 22 records how it is that John became a disciple, how he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. That is, they followed Jesus. Jesus called John the son of Zebedee and, and he followed Jesus. Now, it's likely, almost certain, that that John had heard about Jesus, even, even likely heard some of his teaching, his preaching. So this wasn't just John seeing a stranger saying, hey, come and follow me. Abandon your father, this net stuff that you're doing, and come follow me. He knew uh, at least some of what Jesus was about, and, and he had begun to understand who Jesus is. And, and so he, he followed Jesus. And and later, the Holy Spirit would use John to write what we know as the Gospel of John. All scriptures breathe out by God. So there's a human writer, but the real author of scripture is God. The Holy Spirit is the one who breathes out the scriptures. Now, uh, friends, what a gift then we, we have in John's gospel. Just think about it. This is a book that was written by a man who came to know exactly who Jesus is. This is a man who was with Jesus from the very beginning of his public ministry. He's one of the disciples. He's he's a man who saw Jesus perform miracle after miracle. He, He saw Jesus heal the sick, give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and life to the dead. John had heard Jesus preach on the kingdom of God over and over and over again. John had heard Jesus talk about God's plan to rescue and redeem sinners, a plan that would require Jesus to die for our sins and be raised from the dead, which, which very much confused John and, and the rest of the disciples until it happened. They didn't get it until after it all happened. They're, then they're saying, whoa, now it makes sense. Jesus talking about dying and then being raised from the dead. John was there when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which, which we, we just studied for the last three weeks together as a church. John was there when Jesus was arrested in the garden, when it seemed like darkness had won And he was there on Good Friday when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He saw with his own eyes Jesus' beaten body hanging on the tree for all there to see. John is the one that Jesus from the cross entrusted the care of his mother Mary to. John was there when Jesus died after he cried out, "'It is finished,' and gave up his spirit." John was one of the first to hear about the empty tomb and he is the one who outran Peter to the tomb to see with his very own eyes that it was all true just as Jesus said he had died and he had been raised from the dead and so all of this makes John the ideal person to answer the question who is Jesus because John knows exactly who Jesus is. Answering this, this very question is, is part of the, the reason why John wrote the Gospel of John. He gives us his reason for writing the Gospel at the end, near the end of, of the Gospel in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us right here why he wrote this book. So that you and I would know who Jesus is and that we would believe in Jesus and in believing in Jesus, we would have eternal life. Because really, it's not just enough to know who Jesus is. You need to believe in Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures in order to have eternal life. And so if you're not a Christian, if you're not believing in Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of sinners, well, then you don't have life. Yes, you're breathing right now, you're sitting there, your heart's pumping. But biblically speaking, when it comes to spiritual life, you don't have it. You're a dead man, you're a dead woman, you're a dead child right now, spiritually speaking. You don't have eternal, everlasting life with God. You won't go to a better place when you die, even if everybody says that at your funeral. They're in a better place now. No, no, no. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know who Jesus is and believe in Jesus, you're not going to go to a better place when you die. And everybody saying that at your funeral doesn't change the fact that this is the closest you will ever get to heaven if you're not a Christian. What a sad thought right there because you know this is not heaven. You will not go to a better place. You will go away from God because you are, as the Bible says, dead in your sins, an enemy of God, deserving of God's righteous wrath. And so what you need most of all this Christmas is is not a break from school or from work. You don't need a new car with a bow on it. See those commercials? That's ridiculous. I don't even think rich people do that. Really rich people do that. Hey, honey, look outside the window. I bought a car without telling you, and I put a really big ribbon on top of it. It's right there. I know you've been dreaming about this, that one commercial since you're like three, going out and seeing a car. No, no. You don't need a car for Christmas. You don't need even a new job if you're not a Christian. You don't need some new clothes or video games or football or a Barbie. What you need most of all, if you're not a Christian, is to know who Jesus is and to believe in Jesus. And that's why John wrote his gospel. He wrote it so that people like you would read it. And in reading it, you would come to know and believe in Jesus. Now, if you're already a Christian, you might say, well, then what's there for me in the Gospel of John, in these verses, in these sermons? Well, there's plenty for you in the Gospel of John and in these Advent sermons. We Christians are called to continue to believe, to to press on in the Christian life, to to keep on growing and maturing and pursuing God, to be sanctified and and I embrace and I enjoy and I rest my head on the the doctrine that, that the saints will persevere that none will be lost. Every Christian will be held, not because they're strong enough, but because God will hold them. The perseverance of the saints, I hold to that. And yet we see in scripture over and over and over again that that the Christian is to continue in faith. Justification is instantaneous. As soon as the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see Jesus rightly. As soon as he gives you ears, true ears, to hear his word and the glories of Jesus Christ in the gospel, as soon as he gives you a new heart, you will respond by repenting and believing in the gospel. And you will be declared righteous, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done. It's instantaneous. And yet it doesn't end there. The good news is not only that you are justified, but that you will be sanctified and you will be glorified. And so the Christian must continue to believe. And so today you might be an apathetic Christian who has been lulled to sleep by sin and the things of this world. It's as if you have forgotten functionally who Jesus is. And so what do you need, brother or sister in Christ? Well, you need to remember who Jesus is. You need to see him afresh. You need God to use his word, these sermons, these passages to wake up your soul to the reality of the greatness and the glory of Jesus. And I know it's likely in a room with this many people that there are some apathetic Christians who are just going through the motions. What you need is for the Holy Spirit to wake you up. And he can use this passage. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that he would use this passage to, to remind you, to, to help you see afresh the greatness and the glory of Jesus and what it means to live for him and have life in his name. Or this morning, you might be a Christian that is overwhelmed by sorrow and suffering and the hardships of life. What do you need to carry you through? Because maybe you will be healed, maybe you won't be. Maybe the suffering will be alleviated, maybe it will increase. What do you need now and for the rest of your life? You need Jesus. You need to see him. You need to treasure Christ above all. That even in the sorrow, the suffering, the hardship, the son of God who has come, has come to give you life now and for all of eternity. And you have Jesus, and it, more importantly, Jesus has you. So even if the suffering, the hardship, the suffering, and, and the, the sorrow, it, it doesn't go away, you have Jesus. You have what you need. You have Christ. Or it might be that you are neither an apathetic or a struggling Christian, but that you're a growing, a maturing Christian who's, who's treasuring Christ above all. And what do you need? How can the gospel of John and these sermons bless you? Here's Here's how, as you again consider who Jesus is and that your faith is in him, it will increase your joy in Christ. More, more, you want more joy, more joy in Jesus. And so it's not like, hey, I reached this level, I'm, 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 I'm covered, I've got enough of Jesus. No, you, you, you need more, you want more. That's eternity, we will be enjoying God for all of eternity, more and more and more and more. And so what do you need this Advent season? Growing, maturing, solid Christian who's, who's not really struggling with sin or apathy, what, what do you need? Or suffering? You, you need to see Jesus even more clearly so that he would strengthen your resolve to worship and to treasure Christ above all. So, so I think I've covered everybody in, in these categories. The non-Christian and whatever type of non-Christian you might be, That you're, you're covered in the non-Christian. You need Jesus. The apathetic Christian, the struggling Christian, the growing Christian. Well, in, in, in all these categories, we have this answer. There's much for you here in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And this brings us to the question, this important question, who is Jesus? John begins in verses 1 and 2 by telling us that Jesus is the Word. He's the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now we know that the Word refers to Jesus because in verse 14 we read, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is a clear reference to the incarnation when Jesus, the Word who is... The only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, became a man and lived among humans as a man. This is the hypostatic union right here. Love that word, and we bring it out especially during Advent, during Christmas. Jesus is truly God, and he's truly man. He did not give up his divinity when he took on flesh. He added to his divinity another nature, a human nature, and here it is. This passage is about Jesus, and, and lest somebody says, wait, well, I'm not sure, it doesn't say his name, we come to verse 17, and there John makes it clear that he's speaking about Jesus when he writes For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, again, paralleling, it's coming, it's in connection with verse 14, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is about Jesus. Jesus is the word. And how does John begin to introduce us to him? By telling us this very truth. Jesus is the word. Now that might be a little little bit strange to some of us. Jesus is the word. Why does he lead with that? You know, if, if you're going to introduce somebody, you know, you, you, you just have one shot, right? Hey, I, w- I want you to meet my wife. Husband, be careful with what you, what you say there, right? Um, she, she's my wife. And then you just kind of leave it there. Yep, this is, this is her. That's her identity. She's my wife. You know, you got one shot to introduce somebody to a stranger. John says, here's what I want you to know. First of all, he's the word. Why and how is Jesus the word? What, is, what does John mean by this? I want you to think about the purpose of a word. A word is used to communicate a message. If I say to you, the sky is beautiful today, well, you know I'd be lying right now, but, but if it were, say, say it was beautiful. It's a sunny day and, and, and the, 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 the light that, that is, is, is coming from the sky hitting the clouds is just beautiful. Wow, if I, if I say that, that the sky is beautiful, well, it would communicate to you that I'm in awe of what I see when I look up you would know something about what's going on in my heart and in my mind. I'm in awe. That's beautiful. Now, if a, if a father tells his daughter she's beautiful, or a man tells the woman that he loves, if he's married his wife, that she is beautiful, well, he's using a word to communicate the message of his affection that he has affection for his daughter, that he loves her, and, and that, that uh, if he says this to his wife, he's saying, I, I think you're beautiful. He's, he's showing his wife and others, if he says it publicly, that, that he has affection for her with this word, beautiful. Well, Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension communicated to us a message, but not in the same way that other words communicate a message because Jesus is the message. The word beautiful is used to describe something else, so Jesus is the word because he is the message. He is God's full and complete revelation. He is the very truth that communicates God to us. You see, when John says Jesus is the word, he's not merely saying Jesus communicates a truth about God to us. He's telling us that Jesus communicates God to us. He didn't come just to give a message. He is the message. And this is why in John fourteen six, Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the message. He is the truth that God is communicating to us. And this is why in John 1837, when interrogated by Pilate, Jesus said he came to witness to the truth. Jesus is the truth, the word. He's the final, complete, and full revelation of God to the world. And this is why the author of Hebrews begins with these words, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. There's some some language there that's similar to John 1, the Creator, this word, He's He's He is the, the final revelation. Now, previously God had spoken to His people through the prophets, through other mere humans. But now God has spoken to us by his Son, that is, Jesus. And in speaking to us by his Son, Jesus, well, Jesus is God's final word, his complete revelation. We don't miss anything if we get Jesus. Jesus is also called the word in Revelation 19.13, when, when the same John who wrote the Gospel of John describes Jesus' second advent, his return, saying, Jesus is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And so he comes into the world, and he is revealed to us as the Word, and at the end, when he comes back, he is called the Word. And so this isn't some temporary, insignificant description of who Jesus is. It's not just another title. This is who he is. He is the Word, the full revelation of God to us. And this helps explain why John begins his gospel by telling us that Jesus is the Word. John has come to rightly understand and he desires those who read it, us, to understand with him that Jesus is God's revelation. He is God's truth. He's God's message. He is God's final, ultimate, true, and complete word. There's Some major implications of this for us. It means that, that you and I cannot know, we cannot understand, we cannot communicate with God apart from Jesus. So the person who says, I'm very spiritual. I have a relationship with God, but I do not believe in Jesus, they're communing with a different God. It's not the God of the Bible, and there's only one God. Ultimately, you trace that far enough, they're communing with the devil. It doesn't matter if they're the nicest person. It doesn't matter if they do yoga seven times a day, and they do all the spiritual components to the yoga stuff. It doesn't matter if they're the most religious Jew, or Muslim, or Mormon, or Jehovah's Witness. It doesn't matter, none of it, because Jesus is the Word. So if they don't know Jesus, they don't know God. God cannot be truly known, understood, or seen apart from Jesus. We're told this in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, and we'll get into this more, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That is Jesus. So if you want to understand, if you want to know, if you want to see, if you want to hear from God, then you need to understand, you need to know, you need to see, you need to listen to Jesus because Jesus is the word. But John tells us even more in this passage about Jesus so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. That's his aim, remember? He wants us to know who Jesus is so he doesn't stop with the word. He keeps on going. In verses one and two, John tells us how long Jesus has existed. Verse one. In the beginning was the word. Verse 2, something very similar. He was in the beginning with God. Now, why would John say basically the same thing in verse 1 and verse 2? Why would he do that? Well, for the same reason that a parent like myself will say the same thing over and over again to my children because it's important. Don't touch the stove. Mom's opening up the oven. Don't go near. Stop, Titus. He's one and a half. He's interested in everything. He's learned why. To not go, why? Did, how has he learned to not go by the stove? Because we've told them over and over and over again, don't go by the stove when mom opens the oven. We repeat things because they're important, and so John repeats here the same point because it's important. He wants us to know that in the beginning, the word was, and the word was with God. These two verses should sound familiar as well. This this language in these verses. In the beginning, in the beginning. Where have we heard that before? Well, clearly this is an echo of Genesis 1-1 where we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this echo is intentional by John. John is saying Jesus was there in the beginning. Yes, when we first read Genesis, if we don't know anything about the New Testament, we read that and we're like, it's, it's just one, one right there, just God. That's, that's it. Just this one singular God that no one else is there. And then we read the New Testament, and we get more revelation. We get get more of the the behind-the-scenes of creation. No, there wasn't just this single, single being there. There was another. John is saying that Jesus, the Word, was there in the beginning. In light of John 1, 1, and 2, when we read Genesis 1, 1 as Christians, having read John 1, 1, and 2, well, we can know that Jesus was there. That before time, before creation, Jesus existed, and that He was there when God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus did not come into existence. He's always existed. So when we read Genesis 1:1, 1, 1, we should think, "Hey, I know who's there too. I, I know. Jesus is there. But John tells us that Jesus wasn't just there watching God create the world. He wasn't just some eternally existing spectator who sat on the sidelines during creation saying, God, that's beautiful. Good work, God. I love it. That's great. I I see you sweating over there. See, this is some hard stuff that you're getting into. Yeah, Light, speaking things into existence out of nothing. Wow, I'm impressed, God. And just watched it all happen. In verse three, we read, all things were made through him, through the word, through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. So the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who reveals God to us, who died on the cross for us, is the same one that all things were created through. That will put some great thoughts in your head. Why do I celebrate Christmas? Because the Word became flesh. The same one who everything was created through took on human flesh and was born and lived and died. And because of all of that, I am saved. I'm going to celebrate Christmas. I'm going to recognize my Savior's birth. He's the same one that all things were created through. He is the eternally existing, uncreated word and the source of all that is created. Where did you come from? Ultimately, you trace that back. Adam and Eve, you came from Jesus. You were made through, ultimately. Creation was made through Jesus. In verse one, we're told how the word can be the source of all that is created. Well, he is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, who has eternally existed, was and is God. He has always been God, and he will always be God. He did not become a lesser God when he took on human flesh. Again, he added humanity to his divinity. Now, if you've ever had someone knock on your door, and introduce themselves to you and, and give you a pamphlet and try to talk to you about the kingdom of God, uh, well, you've, you've met a Jehovah's Witness, and, and uh, maybe you have family members who who have, who have come into, and it is a cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, maybe you have some Muslim friends or, or neighbors or Mormon friends or neighbors. Uh, you know, somebody else who denies the full deity of Jesus. Well, they will often say, they will even point to this passage if you don't, Point to this passage when you talk to them about who Jesus is, and they will say, Well, no, 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 no. Uh, This is a mistranslation that Jesus was God. It should read that Jesus was a God, small g. Well, non Christian and Christian Greek scholars have disproven this. Uh, Those who reject Christ's divinity continue, though, to claim that this passage does not teach that Jesus is God. Well, we're not Greek scholars, most of us. You know, I, I took Greek in, in seminary, but I wouldn't consider myself a scholar by any means. So, so what do we do when somebody says this? Do we, do we try and become a Greek scholar? Some of us have the capabilities and the, and the desire to, to look at all the, the original texts and manuscripts and say, no, no, wait a second, wait a second. No, there isn't some secret manuscript buried underneath the city of Jerusalem that that teaches the view. God has protected his word, and we can see that throughout the ages, and we can compare the manuscripts, and we can see right here, no, this says Jesus was God, not simply a God. So how do we respond to somebody who says this to us, whether they're a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim or a Mormon, that, that this doesn't teach, this doesn't say that Jesus is God, but a God. Well, before I answer that question, I, I want to make this clear. If Jesus Christ were not God, he could not have accomplished our salvation. He couldn't have done it. He, he couldn't have dealt with our sin once and for all against God. In, in the gospel, God the Father saves us from his righteous wrath by pouring his wrath out on God the Son. And so ultimately, to deny the full deity of Jesus is in the end to deny the gospel. Jesus must be God in order to save us from God. God takes upon his, himself his own wrath. And so if we lose the divinity of Jesus, we lose ultimately the gospel. Now, it might be that somebody just just is confused. They don't understand this. They don't understand the, the scriptures. And so they just need to be taught. And they're a genuine Christian. And some of this stuff will blow your mind. You dig into it. You dig into the creeds and the confessions. And you start to look at all the history. Whoa, this is some deep stuff. And so sometimes people will wrestle with it. And so they, they might just need to, to wrestle with it more. And, and, and if they're a Christian, they'll come out on this end. They'll recognize that Jesus is God, not just a God or, or some man who became a God, but he is truly the eternally existing God. And others who claim to be Christians, Mormons claim to be Christians, and, and others uh, are not Christians. If you deny the divinity of Christ, as good as they are, as nice as they are, as much as you love them, if they deny the divinity of Christ, well, they're denying the gospel in the end. And so how can we handle this argument uh, if somebody brings us to, to John 1 and says, wait a second, it should really be Jesus is a God. Well, look again at verse 3. It does not just say all things were made through him. That all things were made through him. It also says... And without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing that was made was made without Jesus. And what's so important about this? It means that everything that was made was made through Jesus and that there is nothing that was made that was not made without, that was made without Jesus. So there's nothing that was made without Jesus. And, and follow me here. This means that if Christ were made, he would have had to have been made through himself. Nothing was made that was not made through Jesus. And so for that to work, Jesus would have had to have made himself, which would make absolutely no sense because in order for someone to create something, they must first exist. A painter has to exist to paint a picture, a painting. A a man has to exist or a woman has to exist in order to cut down a tree. In order for for Jesus to create all things, he he has to be eternal and uncreated. This means that Jesus was not made, for he could not have made himself before he existed. Jesus has always existed, always, because he is God. And of course, this brings us to the doctrine of the Trinity. A Christian does not have to fully wrap their mind around the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, sometimes, and we need, to, we need to wrestle with it. We need to understand it. We need to be able to defend it and explain it. And yet the reality is, here, here's, here's the thing. No one is like God. No one. And, and so we, we, we think about God, we, we know about God, we study the scriptures and we learn about God and it reveals who God is and, and here's what God has revealed to us. He is triune. He's triune. And so the Christian doesn't need to, to be able to fully wrap their mind around it. They simply need to believe it because the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches it in this passage. The Bible teaches it in, in, the, in the rest of the whole breadth of the scriptures. You, you see it in Jesus' baptism. You even see it in the Great Commission. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God would not give his glory to any other. He would not have us be brought into and and have the the sign of the covenant uh, shared with someone other than himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. They are equally God. And in this very same passage, we can find support for the doctrine of the Trinity. In verse 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, who has eternally existed, who was never created, but is the creator and source of all that has been created, was with God. So he's, he's with God, but then we, we hear that he is God himself. So there's this distinction between the Word and God, and yet at the same time in this passage, we're told that the Word is God. The Word was with God, and yet the Word is God. There's this distinction, and yet there is this unity, the Bible is clear. There is only one God. And yet here, and in many other passages, as I mentioned, we see that God is three persons, that he is triune. In his systematic theology, theologian Wayne Grudem gives this definition of the Trinity. There's many other good ones, but I thought this was simple, basic, and good, and helpful. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. If you deny the divinity of Jesus, you're denying God. You're rejecting God. He is God. To to not recognize Jesus as God is to, to get God wrong. There is only one God, one divine essence, as theologians refer to. And this one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The three persons of the Godhead are equally, fully, and truly God. We see in Scripture that they perform different functions within salvation, but one is not more God than the other. They are equally God, the Godhead. And in this morning's passage, we find two of these persons, the Father and the Son. Well, we learn two more things. John, John doesn't end there in this passage. We learn two more things about who Jesus is in verses four and five. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Life creates light. And without light, there will be no life. Think of how plants need sunlight to grow. Yes, I know that we humans have been able to create lights that, that mimic the sun. And, and now, in a sense, we don't need sunlight. But you get the principle. Uh, ultimately, we, we need light for life. At creation, calling forth light is God's first creating act. Before everything else is made, he, he creates light. And in scripture life and light go hand in hand and they're often found together and they're often used in reference to god psalm 27 1 the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear the lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall i be afraid we have here my light my life psalm 56 13 for you have delivered my soul from death yes my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Same language that we find in John 1. Light, life. Jesus being God is the source of life. He is the source of life. He is the one that, that all things were made through. We've already seen that. And, and Paul writes in Colossians 1, 16, that not only was all, all things made through Jesus, but all things were made for Jesus. We, we talk about this a lot. Why do you exist? Why are you here right now? Why did, did, did you come into existence? Here's why. For Jesus. You exist for Jesus. And not only do we hear that in Colossians 1.16, but Paul says all things are held together by Jesus. So, so Jesus is the creator, he's the sustainer, and he's the savior. Later in John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus being life and light aligns with John's purpose for writing. It is only in Jesus that we can have life and light. You you want to have life? You need Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. He is life. He's the source. He's the sustainer. He's the giver of life. He is the savior. Life comes in Jesus light comes from Jesus. Through him everything that was made was made, and through him all who are saved will be saved. And yet when sin entered the world, death came as its consequence. Romans 6:23 for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life where in Christ Jesus our Lord. Without life there can be no light. There's a lot more here that we're going to dig into when it comes to life and light as we make our way through the rest of the passage. But, but that's what I want to have before you right now. Who is Jesus? He is the life and he is the light. You will not have life if you do not have Christ and you cannot have light, true light without Christ. Jesus is the life that gives light to the world. Now look, look at the, the final verse that we'll make our way through this morning, Verse five. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When John says in verse 5 that the light shines in the darkness, he's speaking about the incarnation, about the word, the Son of God taking on flesh. Jesus, in the incarnation and his birth, came into a dark world as the light of the world to give life to sinners. In verses 9 through 11, we read, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So we're getting this, this picture that, that in the incarnation and in the birth of Christ, the light came into the world. Now the, the the idea of darkness in the Bible is often, almost always connected to something bad. Sin, evil, death, the devil. So darkness has this, this this lingering metaphor throughout scripture for for that which is is bad and evil. John 3, 19 says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Another another way to think about the fall when Adam and Eve sinned and and that sin has been passed on to every man and woman who's been born in the, the line of Adam is that darkness came. There was light, There was fellowship with God. Glory and holiness were everywhere. There was no darkness. But when sin entered into the world, not only did death enter in, but darkness entered into the world. And so in in this passage, you know, we're we're given some wonderful Christmas news. Some some great Advent truth for us to, to think about. We don't have to wonder as Christians who's going to win the battle. You know, in Popular culture, you know, kind of this yin and yang thing exists. Even some Christians I've heard talk about kind of like, you know, this it's as if there's this epic battle between good and evil. Like they've been watching too many Marvel movies or something like that, and, and we don't know who's going to win. Is the good guy going to win or is the bad guy going to win? There's this, this battle that's been going on for, for seemingly ever between good and evil, and, and they're, they're clashing, and, and it's like this. That's not the, the picture that, that the Bible paints of what reality is. It's like this, and it's going to happen. Darkness will be vanquished. It will be crushed. We're not left in suspense by God's word. The darkness, sin, evil, the devil will not win. The darkness has not, and not only has it not, it cannot, it will not overcome the light because the light is Jesus. Jesus is God. And so this is good news for us. This makes all the difference for those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There's hope, there's light, there's life. In John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come as light into the world, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Friend, if you're a believer, you have come out of darkness. We were all born in sin, born in darkness. Death awaited us not just physically but spiritually. And yet if we're in Christ, we are in the light, not because we turned on the light, we hit the switch, but because God has brought us into light by the revealing of his son. And our faith is in him. We've been brought by God out of death into life, into the light. It's beautiful. John 12:36 says, "Well, you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light." When you know who Jesus is then, and you believe in Jesus, you don't just go from death to life. You do do that, but you don't just do that. You don't just go from darkness to light. You go from being an enemy of God to being adopted by God. You become his daughter, his son. What a glorious and sweet truth from God's word for you and I, all who know, who, who also, all who come this Advent season to know and believe in Jesus Christ. Now the reality is, we look around and what do we see? We see a lot of darkness, don't we? Now I'm one that I need to be careful how much I watch of the news and how much I read of the news. Because it can bring me into despair. Whoa, you read story after story of just wicked and evil things. This is, this is darkness all around and it feels like darkness is winning, that it's making progress. We hear of, of school shootings Little little children learning math in their, their classrooms with their teacher being shot and killed. We hear about terrorism acts throughout the world, not just in America, but throughout the world. We hear of wicked people kidnapping, tormenting, and killing the vulnerable. We hear about men using their position and power to abuse and take advantage of women. We hear about people murdering people, sometimes for their stuff, and just because they think it's fun. We hear about men who think they're women, women who think they are men, babies being killed by their mothers in the womb, divorce rates increasing, drugs enslaving and killing large numbers of the next generation. I could say so much more. I could tell you stories. And yet you get the picture. It seems as if darkness is winning, but then we read the Bible and we realize that that's not the case. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Sometimes it seems, sometimes it looks, sometimes it feels like the darkness has overcome it, but it hasn't. The darkness will not overcome Jesus Christ. The gospel will win, He will not be stopped. And, and here's the thing, and, and I want you to think about this. I, I often talk with especially older Christians. I'm not trying to pick on you, older Christians, uh, but you talk about you know, the, the, the good old days when you didn't have to lock your door when you went to bed. When, when you could just kind of walk around the neighborhood, the kids could ride their bikes to the neighborhood. And I get what you're saying. And I think there is this reality that as we become more and more secularized as a nation, and we move away from God's law, well, there's going to be an effect. You know, no longer are, are God's laws guiding and directing the, the non-Christian and, and protecting them and us. It, it, it's, it, it's going to, to feel worse. I get that. So I'm with you there. But the reality is darkness came in in the fall. And and we're just feeling more of the reality in darkness. And here's the other reality that I want to remind you, not just you older Christians who kind of struggle with the good old days being gone. When do you see the light more clearly? When there's more darkness. And here's one of the effects of of our culture and this country and and the West moving further and further away from, from God's law. The light shines brighter. So now we have, and, and some of you have, have gone through this difficult feeling and this experience with family members and friends, you have a lot of people who used to claim to be Christians because it was right and proper, and, and the thing that everybody else was doing, who are no longer doing that. They're, they're not claiming to, to follow Christ. And so they no longer have to be convinced that they're in the darkness because they, they, they know that they're not Christians. And so, so what can happen now? as we share the gospel with those who maybe once proclaimed to be Christians, but, but as, as the, the society and the culture has shifted and, and it's become more dark, well, we have a brighter light to shine into their darkness. They're not thinking they're in the light anymore. They've abandoned, they've rejected, they've dismissed the gospel. And so we can say, you are in the darkness. You're not claiming to be a Christian anymore? Well, well, let me tell you about the light. And so I, I think there is actually something something for us as we ponder the darkness. Ultimately, as we, we watch the news, we read the news, we should come to this position. The light shines brighter in the darkness. So what should I be doing? Open my mouth and tell people about the light that is shining and cannot be overcome in the darkness. We see unbelief. We see sin. We, we, we feel it. We, we watch it on the news. And, and what, what is the response from God? Light. Life and it's found in Jesus Christ. So don't be discouraged. Take heart. Have cheer, Christian, this Christmas. The light shines brightest in the darkness. So when you're at the family gatherings this Christmas season, and maybe you're like me where there is this real tension, should I just be, be, be at peace and, and not bring up God? <laughs> I hope you come to the place, and I want to be at the place every single time that if I have the opportunity to be winsome and loving and patiently listen in response to what I have to say, I'm going to talk about the light. Because those people that I'm gathering with, many of, many of whom openly reject the gospel, they're in the darkness. They're headed towards hell. And Christmas is about light and life. And so church, may God give us a passion reinvigorate our our desire to open our mouths, to be evangelistic all the time. But, But Christmas gives us an especially unique time to talk about the life and the light because he will not be stopped. He has the victory and all who believe in him will have the victory in and through him. Jesus shines in the darkness. His gospel is bright in the darkness. His people, the church, should shine too in the darkness. The darkness will not, it cannot overcome the light. So in summary, who is Jesus? John tells us that Jesus is the Word. He has eternally existed. He is God. He is the the one that all things were created through. He is the life and he is the light. He is the Christ, the Son of God, and all who believe in him will have eternal life. Friends, may the Lord help us all to see his glory, the glory of Jesus Christ this Advent season. Let's pray. Oh God, we do pray that you would... Give us a a greater passion, a a greater, heavier burden for the the lost that we love, that we know, that we live next to, that are in our family. Help us to, to be confident, not in our abilities, not in our intelligence, but in your word, the word, who is life and light, who shines in the darkness. Father, we do pray that that your light, the light of Jesus Christ, the, the, the life that comes in knowing Jesus and, and trusting in, in Jesus would, would spread throughout our, our church even more, our families, our neighborhoods, schools, the, the places where we work, and that you would use us, not because we're the greatest evangelist or apologist, but because we believe that your word is true. We love you and we want you to be glorified. We want people, people who are in darkness, to come into the light, to have life. I do pray for those apathetic Christians among us, that you would refresh their their minds and their hearts, that that they would treasure Christ above all this Advent season, and you would use these sermons and, and, and our time in John 1 to do that. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are struggling with whatever they might be struggling with, that you would use these sermons in John 1 to, to strengthen their resolve and their faith, their commitment to you, even in their suffering. And I pray that you would use these Advent sermons in our time in John 1 to strengthen faith, to increase faith, so that Christ would be treasured above all. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.